This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello and welcome to The Law Show Podcast. My name is Prabhjit Punia and I am your host for this episode. Today's episode engages in a conversation on the role of the Ombuds institutions. Our guest today is Professor Linda Reef, a distinguished international law professor and the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. Professor Reef is an expert in international human rights law and Ombuds institutions. Her work has been widely cited and appears in the Canadian, US, European, and Asia-Pacific publications. Professor Reef, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. I would like to first start by congratulating you on the publication of your new book. Thanks very much. Thank you. So let's begin with a foundational question. What exactly are Ombuds Institutions? Well, Ombuds Institutions uh, are domestic state sector bodies uh, that should be and in many cases are uh, created by and responsible to the legislative branch of government. Uh, and they are designed to investigate uh, and address issues of uh, illegal or improper administration, what we often call maladministration, and to uh, make impartial investigations, report, make recommendations to government for improvement uh, in that area. And so these are found at the national level of government and also at subnational levels, uh, such as provinces, autonomous communities, even at the municipal level. And what has been the evolution of Ombuds institutions and how have they evolved over time? The first such institutions we can call classic institutions and the classic Ombuds institution dates back to 1809 in Sweden. And then a few more of these institutions were created in the early 20th century. And it wasn't until the 1950s, 1960s that the institutions started to spread in various countries around the world. And many people today think of this as the uh, only type of uh, ombuds institution, but things have changed considerably. If we look at comparative law kind of developments, uh, one of the big developments is the creation of the human rights ombuds institution at the national or the subnational level. And while the classic ombuds institution doesn't have an explicit human rights mandate, Human rights ombuds institutions do explicit human rights protection and promotion mandates. And I'm sure we can get into more detail on both of these types of institutions uh, later in the uh, podcast. What I also wanted to say at this point in time is that there have also been many variations on the ombuds concept that have been used inside government departments and in the private sector. And many of them while they're called ombuds institutions, have different uh, powers than the state sector ombuds, uh, often different mandates, uh, less independence, and sometimes they're really more like mediation types of 
mechanisms, dealing with sometimes internal employment issues, sometimes dealing with complaints from uh, outside the institution. So in terms of my work, I don't really look at those types of dispute settlement mechanisms in, in any detail. I focus on the state sector. As you shared earlier, ombuds institutions are often created by the legislative branch of the government. Then how would you describe the relationship between these institutions and the judiciary? Right. Uh, I should add that uh, many ombuds institutions are appointed by and report to the legislative branch, but a few are appointed by and report to the executive branch, and then they have more problems with, with independence. But that's the case with all sorts of domestic institutions. If we look at human rights commissions, for example, not all of them are appointed by the legislature. Um, some of them are appointed by the executive. Uh, but with ombuds institutions, we do, when we look at them around the world, they're the majority, the great majority of them are appointed by um, the, the legislative branch. So in terms of ombuds institutions with the uh, relationships with the judiciary, there are a variety of ways of looking at it so that we can, first of all, look at ombuds institutions as being complementary or supplementary to the judicial branch. The courts are one type of horizontal accountability mechanism, although they have additional functions. When we look at the branches of government, the legislature, the executive, the judicial branch, there's also other types of uh, state institutions uh, that have considerable independence from these three branches of government. And human rights ombuds, classic ombuds, are some of these other types of horizontal accountability mechanisms as well. So in that sense, um, ombuds institutions other types of similar bodies like human rights commissions um, are complementary to the courts because they uh, are trying to achieve similar aims and, and objectives in certain areas. Uh, so, for example, some issues are just not justiciable and can't be taken to the court. And so, in that sense, uh, human rights and classic ombuds may be able to deal with these matters, such as if we're looking at the human rights area, for example, a number of economic, social, and cultural rights are not justiciable in the courts. Whereas we see, especially when we're looking at human rights ombuds, they can look at these types of second, third generation rights, um, given their more flexible, broader mandates. Also, a lot of uh, people in, in, the, in the community can't afford to litigate their problems, right? They just don't have the money to uh, go to court. And so ombuds institutions can serve as uh, accessible mechanisms. They're free of charge. Uh, they are not adjudicative kinds of mechanisms. We have to be clear on that. Uh, they report, recommend, and do other kinds of intermediate kinds of work. But they do provide access to justice when the courts are closed. Uh, or are too expensive for people to use. And further to that, in, in a number of countries, the judicial branch is, uh, the courts are, are politicized or they're corrupt or they're dysfunctional in other ways. And so in that sense, ombuds institutions can serve an even more important function uh, in trying to help people who cannot go to court or don't want to go to court because of those problems. So that's just one kind of relationship between the ombudsman and the judiciary. 
we also see another another aspect of this relationship is that in some countries, uh, especially when we're dealing with uh, some of the human rights ombuds, but even going back to the initial, the, the first two ombuds institutions that we can call classic ombuds, at least in those days, the Swedish and the, uh, the Finland ombuds had jurisdiction over the judiciary. And today, uh, many human rights ombuds have different levels of jurisdiction over, over the judiciary. They might just have jurisdiction over the administration of justice, doing, being able to look at things like uh, uh, unfair or extreme delay, um, uh, use of uh, improper language or gender stereotyping by the judges, that sort of thing. But some of the institutions can also look at the substantive aspects of the judicial um, process, uh, as we see with the, the, the Swedish and the Finland ombuds, although they rarely exercise that kind of, that kind of oversight. We think that quite unusual because in our country, in the common law countries, we do see um, self-regulation, of course, right? judicial councils and that sort of thing. And in uh, a number of civil law countries, there are state sector judicial councils that look, overlook and oversee the judiciary. But in a number of these civil law countries, we also have the, the ombuds um, oversight, either partially or, or fully. Uh, and then... The other interesting development with human rights ombuds, as they're given uh, numerous mandates beyond the classic ombudsman model, is that um, many of them have the power to launch uh, court actions in constitutional courts or administrative courts, so that they, uh, while they do not impose their own binding decisions, they act as like a conduit uh, being able to bring an action in, say, in the constitutionality action, arguing that a new statute is contrary to the human rights obligations of the state, either internationally or in the constitution, uh, or they can, in administrative courts, argue that, uh, for example, administrative action of the executive is unfair or illegal, so that they have this very interesting kind of ability to launch this kind of litigation. And also, a number of them are able to uh, intervene in human rights litigation uh, started by others to raise issues of human rights uh, protection and promotion that is important to them that they think needs to be emphasized. Thank you, Professor Reeves. Your analysis clearly portrays the relationship between the ombuds institutions and the judiciary. Now, I would briefly like to focus in on two main ombuds institutions that you have referenced, classic-based ombuds and human rights ombuds. Then first focusing on the classic-based ombuds, what are the mandates and powers of such institutions? Okay. Well, if we start with the classic ombuds, I've talked about those kinds of institutions uh, in an introductory way already. Uh, so they do not have an explicit human rights mandate, and their mandate is to uh, deal with combat maladministration, right, this administrative justice mandate. And their standards in doing so are uh, often legality. Is the administrative conduct legal? And that would apply generally, but also sometimes uh, these classic ombuds are given explicit administrative law 
kind of directions you know, is is um, when we look at administrative law, those kind of subset of administrative law protections are included in their mandate. Uh, but beyond that, a number of ombuds institutions have what I call extra legal assessment standards in that they are asked to determine um, whether what would be otherwise legal conduct still is problematic. And the standards range from is this proper or improper conduct? Is this conduct wrong? Uh, is it fair, or equitable, that, that type of thing? So this gives these classic and classic-based ombuds very broad kind of um, assessment standards, much, much broader than we see with the courts, right, or, or administrative tribunals. So that uh, in doing so, they have always have the ability to take complaints from members of the public that the administrative authorities are acting illegally or, or unfairly. And many of these uh, classic ombuds institutions also have the power to launch own motion investigations. That is, they don't have to wait for a complaint. If, the, if they see that there is a systemic or other kind of um, major problem, which, they, which may come from some of the investigations they're receiving or media uh, information on something that is going badly wrong, they can start their own um, investigation. Now, as these investigations are conducted, they have to be impartial, right? They don't take sides. And then they come to a conclusions as to whether there has been a violation of law or administrative law standards, or even if legal, have the extra legal assessment standards been violated. And so that they will analyze the facts, look at relevant law and broader kind of principles based on their extra legal assessment standards. And then uh, if they determine there is a problem, then they'll make recommendations to the administrative authorities, to the government to make change. So they cannot impose their, their recommendations in, in the vast majority of cases. And what they try to do then is to, to persuade the state, to persuade the government to make change. And so ombuds institutions have been called mechanisms of cooperative control as opposed to coercive control like courts. Um, in addition, what we see is that some of these ombuds also have additional powers like in the power of inspection to go into facilities where people are held involuntarily to determine whether they're being treated properly, um, that type of thing. And not, sometimes ombuds can make advice and that type of thing. Uh, so this is the core of the classic ombuds. But again, when we look at comparative law and changes over time, whether it's through the legal transplant process or even internally in a country, we, we look at Canada, for example, governments have created new kinds of overview mechanisms. And in many cases, rather than giving them to a new separate institution, they have added these duties to their classic ombuds. So I call these institutions uh, classic-based ombuds. So they are given mandates like um, protecting uh, privacy or freedom of information, uh, protecting whistleblowers, uh, sometimes they have environmental protection uh, mandates. A number of ombuds, especially in Africa and Asia, are given anti-corruption mandates, which I actually think is going too far, that 
for anti-corruption, you often need the enforceability, right? The prosecution and adjudicative aspects. And so I think it's a mistake to give this mandate to an ombudsman if they don't have the, uh, or they shouldn't be given the adjudicative powers because that changes them from an ombuds to an administrative tribunal. So that, they, that should be hived off, I think. A number of these ombuds in this part of the world, these parts of the world also have um, leadership ethics oversight, which intersects with anti-corruption, but also deals with broader kinds of issues in terms of conflict of, conflicts of interest and that type of thing. So that um, ombuds institutions today, the classic bakes ones in particular, are, are, are quite varied. Uh, and the classic or the classic based ombuds, they're in the minority now. They're, the majority of national ombuds institutions are actually human rights ombuds. But when we look to the um, classic and classic-based ombuds institutions that exist, both at the national and the domestic, uh, the, the subnational level in, in, inside a country, is that they are found mainly in common law countries, but also in some of the mixed legal systems. So they're found in North America, like in Canada, we have, most of our provinces and territories have these classic-based classic ombuds. Uh, they're found in much of the Caribbean and in parts of Europe parts of Africa and the Asia Pacific. You have shared that most of the ombuds institutions today are human rights ombuds. How have these institutions evolved over time and how do their mandates differ from the classic ombuds? My, my research has been focused on the national level ombuds institutions and, and they're definitely the human rights ombuds today is in the majority. You know, over 60% of national level ombuds now are, are Human rights ombuds at the subnational level, like in provinces and, and uh, communities, that sort of thing. There are a, quite a few human rights ombuds as well, so I think it would likely be a similar kind of ratio as well. Uh, but the human rights ombuds was the, the 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 comprehensive human rights ombuds was established in the mid 1970s in in southern Europe when Portugal and Spain. Uh, moved away from military or authoritarian governments to democracy. And what they did was to look to elements of the classic ombuds, but also because they wanted these in this institution to have a human rights mandate, because, of course, they were responding to the human rights abuses of the prior regimes, they looked to uh, human rights commissions and similar kinds of human rights bodies. And so the human rights ombuds institution is, is always a hybrid. It's always some mix of the classic ombuds model and some aspects of the human rights commission or institute kind of model. So that um, when we look to human rights ombuds today, uh, they've become the dominant model in most of Europe, certainly throughout Central and East Europe, but increasingly in Western Europe, uh, they're the dominant model in Latin America, um, and also found in parts of Africa, Asia Pacific, and the Caribbean. And they're found mainly in civil law countries, not always, um, but mainly in civil law countries and, and mixed jurisdictions. And so in terms of this human rights ombudsman, the vast majority of them are single leaders, as opposed to, say, the Human Rights Commission, which has multiple members. Uh, so the human rights ombuds is, is led by one institution, uh, institutional leader. Uh, it could be 
and the names for these institutions differ. So it could be Commissioner for Human Rights, it could be Defender of Human Rights or Defensor de Pueblo in, the, in Spain and Spanish-speaking countries, Provider of Justice in, in Portugal and Lusophone um, countries, and so on. And they always have an explicit human rights mandate. So human rights ombuds, based on the, uh, the classical ombuds foundation, always have the ability to take complaints from individuals about the state's violations of their human rights. Occasionally, they also have partial or full jurisdiction over the private sector as well, in terms of human rights abuses between private, between private actors. They um, traditionally, only some of them had human rights promotion mandates, but based on the pressures of the international standards, that is changing. Because um, human rights ombuds at the national level can also be classified as national human rights institutions. And we have a variety of uh, international standards now for national human rights institutions. And the main standards are the UN Paris principles, as have been interpreted and elaborated on by GANRI, which is the Global Alliance of National Human Rights Institutions. So that um, in addition to these human rights protection uh, mandates like individual complaints, uh, investigations. Many of them have the own motion investigation um, mandate. Many of them have the ability to launch or intervene in human rights litigation, that sort of thing. These promotional mandates uh, we see spreading through human rights ombudsmen because of the pressure of the national human rights standards and the Paris principles, which call on national human rights institutions to have promotional mandates is we're looking at more and more of these institutions having the ability to give advice to government on improving human rights domestically, law reform advice included in that, um, human rights research, education, training, and also human rights public awareness raising. Uh, and the other interesting thing that has happened um, over the, the last decade or so is that increasingly the uh, UN and sometimes regional human rights treaties require the parties to the treaty to create domestic mechanisms to implement the obligations in, in the treaty. And so what we see is that increasingly human rights ombuds as national human rights institutions are being given these mandates. And some classic ombuds are being given these mandates and, and by that being transformed into national human rights institutions. So we're looking at things like the OPCAT, the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture, which calls on states or requires states to create national preventive mechanisms to go into places uh, where people are con uh, voluntarily confined, like prisons, detention centers, immigration detention centers, um, healthcare facilities where people are confined involuntarily, whether that be you know, mental health facilities, dementia units for older people, to make sure that they're not being subjected to torture or to cruel and human or degrading punishment and make recommendations on that. There's also the UN Convention again on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that requires states to create frame, domestic frameworks to implement and apply the treaty. And increasingly, ombuds are, are being given that mandate. Um, and we, uh, another example is the European Union has requirements for domestic mechanisms in the equality rights area. 
And so in Europe, in the EU countries, uh, human rights audits are being tasked with this duty as well. Um, so that's, that's, I think, be the, the main um, similarities and differences to classic and uh, classic-based ombuds. Some, some of the human rights ombuds have purely human rights mandates, but some of them have been given additional mandates as well. Often, it's the traditional maladministration mandate of the classic ombuds, so they're doing both. And occasionally, they're given some of these mandates that you see given to classic-based ombuds, like environmental protection or anti-corruption uh, or those types of uh, data protection or freedom of information kinds of mandates as well. Thank you for this comparative analysis. Now, shifting our focus on how the ombuds institutions apply international human rights law, could we please begin by defining what exactly is international human rights law and what are its sources? Well, international human rights law is the law between states dealing with uh, human rights protection. And when we look to the sources of international human rights law, we're looking predominantly at treaty law and its derivative instruments and to customary international law. Uh, but the reality today that most of the detail of international human rights law are found in UN human rights treaties and regional human rights treaties and their derivative kinds of instruments. So we have a variety of UN human rights treaties uh, and those are overseen by the relevant human rights treaty committee, uh, which uh, bodies issue a whole series of different types of non-binding instruments, which we call soft law, to interpret those treaties and also um, in a number of cases to take complaints uh, under those treaties. Regionally, uh, when we look to uh, specifically to Europe, to the Americas, and to Africa, there are regional human rights treaties and the core treaties, which typically focus primarily on civil and political rights with some variations to that. Uh, those are overseen by a regional human rights court. So for example, the European Convention on Human Rights and its substantive are overseen by and adjudicated by the European Court of Human Rights. Right. And what role does soft law play to protect human rights, especially since it's not legally binding on the states? Well, uh, when we're looking at soft law, uh, we're looking at soft law being non-binding law uh, coming from a variety of sources and having a number of different roles. So that, as I mentioned, the UN human rights treaties uh, are overseen by these human rights treaty committees, which issue a series of soft law instruments, like general comments that flesh out the meaning of the treaty provisions, or where they have the complaints process, the views of the committee, uh, determine whether the state concerned has violated one or more of its human rights obligations in, in, in the human rights treaty, and uh, sets out uh, sometimes recommendations for what need to be done to rectify the matter. So while they're in and of themselves not legally binding, they do interpret the terms of the treaty, which, and the treaty terms are uh, binding on the state concern. 
What would be some of the examples of the soft law instrument? So, so for example, in the area of prisoners' rights, um, and, and that's an important area for the ombudsman institution because they get a lot of complaints from prisoners and detainees and so on. Uh, <clears throat> there's very little coverage of prisoners' rights in, in treaty law and a lot of the detail on conditions for, for prisoners, the proper treatment of prisoners and detainees and so on, um, are found in UN soft law instruments, like the uh, UN standard um, rules for prisoners, popularly called the Mandela rules today, uh, the Bangkok rules on treatment of women prisoners, female prisoners, and so on. In the business and human rights area, we have the UN guiding principles on business and human rights as an example. Um, so we have that, and, and we have other types of soft law, like UN General Assembly resolutions, which um, some of them deal with human rights issues as, as well. So those are just a few examples of soft law instruments in, in international law, um, which are, can be influential and persuasive, and can also be applied domestically, uh, voluntarily by states, and this sometimes occurs right, by by different branches of government, including the courts. Professor Reef, what I'm hearing you say is that while soft law instruments are not binding per se, they are not without their significant legal effects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they can be what we call pre-normative in the sense that on the international level, a soft law instrument may become the template for the wording of a later treaty or um, parts, of a, uh, parts of a soft law instrument might codify um, existing customary international law or come to reflect customary international law that um, forms in the future. Also, uh, soft law can be used as persuasive means for interpreting international law or domestic law. So we see, for example, the International Court of Justice using um, the, for example, the Treaty Committee for the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, using some of the instruments of its Treaty Committee, which is the Human Rights Committee, using that to help them interpret the international law. And we've also seen, we see domestic courts in a number of countries using this kind of soft law in a, in a persuasive way to help interpret their domestic constitutional provisions or domestic statutes. Right, and I understand that each state's system of reception of international law determines whether their ombuds institutions can rely on international human rights law, including the international soft law, as binding or merely as a persuasive tool. Yes, so leading on from the prior question then, we can say that domestic ombuds institutions uh, at the national or the subnational level, whether they're human rights ombuds or classic-based ombuds, are also state sector institutions that can use international soft law or even the, the binding treaty obligations of the state that may or may not be implemented into domestic law. And how, how does that occur? Well, when we look at monism, right, that is the idea that um, international law and domestic law are all part of one legal system so that for a state that follows a, a modest approach to treaty law, for example, as many civil law countries do, then the treaty law, once the state has ratified it and there's some official kind of recognition of that, then that treaty can become automatically part of domestic law. Right? That's a 
performance approach. With, with treaty law in, in common law countries, the, the typical approach is to take a dualist approach, right? That is that international law in this area and domestic law are two separate legal systems. And in that case, the treaty law obligation is not automatically part of domestic law um, in most cases, unless the state passes an implementing statute or regulation or amends an existing statute, and unless they take the position that domestic law is already in alignment with the international treaty obligation. So you've got uh, that, that kind of formal distinction so that when you look at ombuds institutions around the world, um, in part, it is connected to their mandate, which may be set out in partly in the constitution um, and legislation or fully in legislation. With human rights ombuds, they're, in, in many cases, they're given uh, an explicit direction to look at international human rights law obligations of the state right, in, in fulfilling their mandates of human rights protection and promotion. And so that kind of links to the, the modest approach in some cases. Uh, oftentimes, the international human rights law obligations of the state are also brought into the Constitution, or the Constitution says to public authorities, including the ombuds, you have to look to the international human rights law right, when, you, when you're uh, interpreting the Constitution. So when you're dealing with monostates, and in particular, many human rights ombuds institutions found in these countries, it's very easy for them to use international human rights law obligations of the state because they've become part of the domestic legal system or, and, and, and additionally, they're instructed to use it. Uh, with soft law instruments, again, that may depend because if they're, if they're fleshing out and elaborating on the meaning of a treaty obligation, there would be a tendency to look for those. But again, if their mandate is, is, is expansive enough, probably these human rights ombuds can look at soft law instruments generally anyway. What you see uh, occurring in dualist countries where human rights treaty law is not automatically part of the domestic legal system, you still see in some countries historically, either with classic ombudsmen, some of which have subsequently been turned into human rights ombudsmen, but certainly, Historically, you sometimes will see these ombuds institutions saying, well, we're still going to look at the treaty law because it's, a, it's an obligation of the country, even if it hasn't been implemented into domestic law. And they can do that because of their more flexible, often broader kind of assessment standards. And what has been the approach of the ombuds institutions in the dualist states, such as Canada and Australia? in applying the international human rights instruments. If we're looking to the Canadian situation, uh, where we have provincial classic-based classic ombuds institutions, one can say that uh, most of our human rights treaties are not, most about all of them are not officially implemented, little bits and pieces here and there. But one can say that the uh, Canadian ombuds shouldn't be looking at them. Uh, also, we have the soft law instruments, right? So we do have official Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence that says you can look to Canada's unimplemented treaty obligations and you can look to soft law to interpret the charter. Um, so that's an indirect use of international human rights law. But what I do see happening in Canada 
and even and in other similar kind of dualist countries like Australia with the, the various ombuds institutions there is that increasingly these ombuds institutions are ignoring the formal approach based on dualism and the barriers that dualism raises by using what some call um, an approach of uh, normative pluralism or it's also been called global legal pluralism where these ombuds institutions basically ignore the formal barriers and just say well we're going, we're going to use not just the unimplemented treaties but we're also going to use soft law and they may be applying them directly or they may be saying these are part of our uh, these are helpful in in applying our broader extra legal assessment standards is, is something wrong whatever. and they look to the international soft law for example as um, uh, illustrations of global consensus or international best practices. So we see in both um, Australia and, and Canada, the state level and the provincial ombuds institutions using the Mandela rules when they're dealing with prisoners' issues like um, improper solitary confinement or lack of inspections and treatment or treatment of prisoners. They look to, um, for female prisoners, there's been some really egregious uh, treatment of female prisoners in Australia. And in that country, the ombuds have looked to the Bangkok rules. In both countries, the ombuds have looked to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in Article 10 on persons deprived of their liberty, uh, as well as a variety of other kind of soft law instruments, right, to, to protect prisoners and detainees in those kind of situations. So it, it, I find it quite fascinating, right, in, in terms of how these ombuds institutions are working in this way. It's, um, and I can, a lot of what I've been doing has kind of linked to comparative law, but in this case, there is this uh, newer area of international law called comparative international law, where you can look at differences between countries in terms of how they apply their international law obligations and international law domestically. And so in, in my work on human rights and classic ombuds, I certainly look to see how uh, both types of institutions are, are using international human rights law, sometimes in different ways from what you'd expect, in, in, in different ways between countries. And, and I would add as well, I, I think it's becoming clear as I go through this, well, domestic, well, uh, domestic classic or classic-based ombuds do not have an, an explicit human rights mandate in, in a number of their cases, not a large number, but in, 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 in a small number of the cases, but often very important kinds of investigations and other work. Um, they do have human rights issues that they have to address, and they apply international and domestic human rights law to help them resolve the investigation or the other work. And so in this sense, uh, it's, it's good to look beyond national human rights institutions to other types of domestic institutions like classic-based ombuds to, to, to see that they do play maybe a supporting role or a subsidiary role, but they do also play a role in helping to implement um, international human rights law and apply human rights norms. Thank you. And Professor Ray, focusing on Canadian ombuds institutions, how would the recent Supreme Court's decision in Quebec and 9147-0732 Quebec Inc. 
impact the Canadian Ombuds' ability to rely on both binding and non-binding international human rights instruments? Yes. Uh, so that decision then uh, really, uh, the majority opinion anyway, made it uh, apparently more difficult to use international human rights law to interpret the charter. Uh, and in particular, uh, giving more weight to unimplemented treaty obligations and a lot less weight to soft law or other kinds of international human rights law not binding on Canada, like the European Convention and European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence. So one could say it's possible that Canadian ombuds institutions are going to be less likely to rely on international human rights instruments in the future because of this. However, I think I adverted to this a little earlier, is that even before this decision, what I'm seeing in Canada, in the provincial ombuds um, scenarios, is that most or all of the ombuds didn't actually follow the Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence prior to the Quebec company decision. Uh, they were just starting to apply international human rights law, both unimplemented treaty obligations of Canada and the soft law in their work, sometimes directly, but oftentimes in uh, elaborating on what is wrong or unjust, right, in the context of their broader um, uh, extra-legal assessment um, standards. So that I do, I do think ombuds institutions in Canada are probably going to continue on in that vein, right, and in relevant cases apply soft law instruments. And, and certainly what we see is that uh, it, to the present time, this has been often in the prisoners' rights area, but also in the children's rights area. Uh, and it may very well be as we, we're now dealing with COVID-19 um, issues in Canada, and Canadian ombuds institutions are, are looking at administrative unfairness and problems raising human rights issues. I think we potentially are likely to see uh, ombuds reference to international human rights instruments coming up in the near future. Thank you, and appreciating your time. And again, our conversation has been very insightful. My last question for you is, what do you think are some of the issues that ombuds institutions around the world are currently dealing with or will need to deal with in the near future? Yes, so there are, uh, given what I have just indicated, obviously with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic over the last two years, um, this has raised a whole host of uh, complaints going to ombuds institutions and also ombuds institutions have been very proactive in starting own motion investigations in this respect. So while the pandemic uh, issue has, has raised a number of problems leading to complaints, to ombuds institutions, what we certainly see, and I think everyone can recognize this from the news in the past um, year or two, is that um, older people have had um, really severe impacts as a result of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what we see is that um, the treatment of older people who are in longer term care facilities of different levels 
even before the pandemic, ombuds institutions had dealt with complaints and had almost investigations in, in the problematic state sector oversight and provision of, of long-term care facilities, right? And this was exacerbated um, by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we can all uh, remember the news when the Canadian military was called in to help out mm -hmm. in uh, long-term care facilities in Ontario and Quebec because the conditions there were so, were so bad. And both the Ontario and the Quebec Ombuds institutions launched own motion investigations into the provincial government authorities' behavior in both those situations. And so those own motion investigations are underway uh, and the reports have not been finalized yet, but the, I'm sure they will be in the news when the reports are issued. And I'll be looking forward to seeing uh, what human rights kinds of norms they, they look to in, in that respect. So that um, we have that. And, and the rights of older people, I, again, they're a very vulnerable population. So even before the pandemic, there were a number of issues that uh, came before all of its institutions. And I think we're going to see more of that as our population is, is aging. And in a number of countries around the world, the aging of the population will mean more um, of these kinds of issues going before um, ombuds institutions, whether they be human rights or classic ombuds. So, I mean, certainly in terms of the work I've been doing in this area, uh, treatment of older people in, in long-term care facilities is, is a big source of complaints to ombuds institutions. But there's also other uh, kinds of complaints like um, age discrimination in various ways. Uh, by the public sector, whether it be uh, in terms of pensions uh, issues or um, <clears throat> issues in terms of uh, social affairs in, in the community. There's also issues of accessibility for older people, whether it be uh, government regulated, and it can be municipal government regulated, things like parking access, transportation access for older people. Uh, and also um, accessibility in terms of older people having problems with everything being online, uh, that, and they, they're not uh, always um, as uh, fast uh, as having the facilities to deal with, uh, you know, online information or do your taxes online, that sort of thing. So there's that. Uh, another important area that's currently being addressed is business and human rights. Mm -hmm. And the uh, UN guiding principles on business and human rights focus on national human rights institutions in particular as domestic uh, state institutions that are non-judicial that are really important in implementing the UN guiding principles uh, domestically. And of course, human rights ombuds at the national level also are national human rights institutions so that you can look at the different kind of work that uh, human rights ombuds should be doing in terms of working with the state you know, under pillar one of the UN guiding principles, um, ranging from giving government advice to uh, they should be involved in uh, the government's uh, business and human rights national action plan to uh, investigating complaints against the state or initiating own motion investigations against the state for business and human rights kinds of issues, uh, to working with the private sector, whether that be business, whether that be communities and individuals negatively impacted by, by business activities, um, 
and therefore helping to implement pillar two as well as pillar one. And so they can engage in a whole host of human rights promotion activities in that regard, as, as well as protection activities. Um, and then I, other issues, uh, there's ongoing kind of work in terms of improving human rights ombudsman work as national preventive mechanisms under OPCAT uh, in terms of the various kinds of facilities that they have jurisdiction over, what kind of work they can do. There's also uh, women's rights, gender rights issues as there has, the, I think ombuds institutions, both human rights and, and classic ombuds can, can do a better job of, of mainstreaming and prioritizing women's rights and gender issues um, in a whole variety of areas. And uh, in terms of the research I've done in the past few years, what I certainly do see is that both both human rights and classic ombuds get a lot of complaints, well, let's say in the context of complaints that address women's rights issues, a lot of these complaints uh, are dealing with gender-based violence in different ways and looking at the state's inability to um, monitor the area. Now, clearly when you're dealing with gender-based violence, that has to be dealt with through the criminal law process in, in many cases. But ombuds institutions can look at the failure of the authorities to properly provide access to justice, right? Can, can, can oversee and critique governments if they don't implement recommendations made by UN human rights treaty bodies like the CEDAW committee on what they should be doing to stop um, and prevent gender-based violence, um, this, this type of thing, right? So there needs to be, I think, more work in this area in terms of informing ombuds institutions of the work that they can do within their mandate uh, that can deal with improving women's rights. The business and human rights area too is important because there's been critique of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights that it discounts uh, gender rights and women's rights. And so there's now a push to, um, to recognize the gender dimensions of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And so similarly then, ombuds institutions and human rights ombuds institutions in particular need to be recognizing that they need to look at women's rights as they're negatively impacted by business activities. Professor Reef, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Once again, congratulations on the publication of your new book, Ombuds Institutions, Good Governance, and the International Human Rights System. I will include a link to your book and your other research work in the show notes for our audience. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.